Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 16 A quote relevant to Chapter 16 The wind was a torrent of darkness upon the gusty trees. The moon was a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas. The road was a ribbon of moonlight looping the purple moor. And the highwayman came riding, riding, riding. The highwayman came riding up to the old inn door. Alfred Noyes, The Highwayman Great Broughton to Blakely Ridge, The Lion Inn Eleven and three-quarter miles, six hours walking. The groan of pleasure from the deluge shower turned into a cry of pain from the sharp stabbing sensation in my right side. Several times along the trail I'd been conscious of a spasm, but it had never been as angry as this before. Perhaps age was catching up with me, and bits were shaken loose by so much activity. Breakfast was a quiet and reflective affair. Once again the Americans were dressed for action. The long peak and half-moon visor traversed a fixed horizontal as the transatlantic trekkers worked round their fryer. It crossed my mind that they may belong to an obscure religious cult that required its members to keep their heads covered whilst in the proximity of bacon and sausage. Colleen deposited Peter and me at Hag's Gate, where the first challenge of the day was the steep 500-foot climb to Claybank Top. Once we'd regained the treeless high ground, the going was easy. It was a six-hour trek over relatively level ground to the Lion Inn, an historic pub on the Yorkshire Moors. When winter gales lash icy spume horizontal off the sea, the tap room in a cosy seaside pub seems like a good place to be. Not so on this Monday morning. The blustery moorland tops, beneath the high blue sky, where it was easy to feel heaven at your shoulder, right then, this was the place to be. Everything about the day was ideal. The air was clear and sharp. Long layers of mauve clouds hung low overhead, whilst higher, a linear chronicle of vapour trails, cut the thin blue beyond. The air was heavy with the scent of heather and the musky tang of damp moorland soil. For miles around, the yellow, green, russet and purple browns fused like the dusty autumnal tones of a well-worn Bedouin rug. Here and there, the flat woolen tops fell away to lush valleys alive with ant-sized farm animals. Across the valley of Ingleby Bottom, an inclined scar across the hillside was evidence of the once mighty Rossdale Railway. In the 19th and early 20th century, the steam engines hauled more than 10 million tons of iron from the mines in the Rossdale Valley. The ore was smelted into steel in the industrial area of Teesside, several miles to the north. On the hillside up ahead, the ruins of the Victorian ironworks had rusted down to create a treasure trove of industrial archaeology. This, however, is not the earliest ironworks site in the area. Several medieval bloomers used to process iron ore have been unearthed nearby. It's truly astonishing the risks early industrialists took in pursuit of riches. The complexity of the task to extract iron ore from inhospitable rock hillsides and the tricky engineering task of building a railway to climb 900 feet to transport iron ore required enormous faith and unrelenting self-belief. 
Even at that stage of development, the project wasn't complete and would produce no profit for investors. Steel itself is worthless until it turns into something useful for which a market exists. Recently, a long overdue tribute was paid to the staggering contribution of the 17th and 18th century engineering entrepreneurs. In a nationwide survey to identify the greatest Britain, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, an engineering, financial and project management genius, was voted into second place, beaten by none other than Sir Winston Churchill, Britain's Prime Minister during the Second World War. The heath was cross-cut with the open wounds of firebreaks, clear tracks where the heather had been flailed to expose the bare, peaty soil beneath. During long hot periods, when the ground becomes cracked and dry, the peat itself may catch fire, and once the smouldering takes hold, it becomes virtually impossible to smother. Even the obnoxious yank from the previous day would have been hard-pressed to lose his way on this section of the trail. There was only one intersection, and that was where we said farewell to the Cleveland Way, which veered off to the northwest. We continued eastwards along the disused Rothsdale-Ironstone railway track that followed the contour line around the edge of Middlehead and Farndale Moor. On the moor we were on our own, save only for the half-hearted bleating of the ever-present sheep. Usually the sheep ignored us, but occasionally one interrupted its life obsession with eating to look our way, ensuring we kept our distance. About midday, a shabby old-age pensioner rode by on a battered road-racing bike with dropped handlebars and tattered canvas panniers. He was kitted out, but not in suburbanite skin-tight lycra garb, but in a ragged Macintosh and a cloth cap with his trousers tucked into his socks. He pedalled furiously in low gear and struggled to keep the bike upright. G'day, I called, but he paid no heed. Not once did he acknowledge our existence by deed, of word, nod, or glance. His attention was fully focused on the task in hand, cycling on the rough gravel track. Like Dewdrop, this tough codger was living proof that it's never too late to Give it a go, you mug! Camouflage grouse butts, built out of stone and turf, are scattered in clusters across the hillside. Each year, between August and December, the butts provide concealment for shooters poised to blast grouse flushed skyward from the rough ground by teams of beaters. High in the sky, hidden from view behind the clouds or hills, a single-engined aircraft was practicing controlled stalls. Time after time, the plane reached the point where gravity triumphed over horsepower, and the machine started to freefall back to Earth. At this point, man's ingenuity intervened, allowing the pilot to regain control to repeat the manoeuvre. It may be mankind's apparent control over aspects of the natural world that has led to the misguided belief that we humans are above nature and not part of nature. Peter and I adopted a more leisurely pace than the racy tread that Wainwright and the author of the guidebook claimed. They must have stoked the boiler, opened up the throttle and gone full speed ahead. A bit like the train in J.M.W. Turner's 1844 painting, Rain, Steam and Speed, the Great Western Railway, going hell for leather. Our boilers worked at a lower pressure. We ambled along, dawdling here and there, taking time to stand and stare. The reappearance of the wretched cyclist making the return journey on that dilapidated two-wheeler was a marvel to behold. He flapped towards us like a bundle of tattered flags escaping a desecration burning. 
Again, he paid us no heed nor gave any indication of enjoying the outing. He wobbled by, crouched low over the handlebars, fully engaged in his own world. The bedraggled cyclist may have been a misery guts, but his effect on Peter and I was quite uplifting. We revelled in his pantomime and laughed out loud when the crabby old fart disappeared round the bend, his legs a blur of ambition. Set against the bright sky, the dark silhouette of the Lion Inn was clearly visible from a long way off. The closer we got, the less inviting the place appeared to be. The commune of ugly buildings looked more like an abandoned military outpost than the moorland oasis it had been for half a millennium. The famous hostelry squatted low to the ground alongside the road that crossed the moor from Hutton the Hole in the south to Westerdale and Castleton in the north. Nowadays, travellers, walkers and shooters refresh themselves at the Lion Inn. In former times, sportsmen of a different and more sinister ilk assembled there. They arrived quietly in small groups so as not to arouse suspicion. When the time was right, and they were sure no uninvited guests had slyly infiltrated their company, they slipped away. At Blakely Howe, behind the inn, an ancient burial mound had been exhumed to provide a secluded amphitheatre, an ideal pit for those gathered to indulge their bloodlust and wager on illicit cockfights. Those days are long gone, and when we arrived, the car park was crammed with tourist buses and cars. The pub was heaving with elderly day-trippers, quaffing pints and lashing into mounds of crispy cod and chips. In fairness to the inn's heritage, the interior did reflect the 500-year lineage as claimed. The massively thick walls concealed a maze of rooms and passages with treacherously low archways. There were hidden corners where, in days gone by, a highwayman might sit unnoticed, cradling a tankard of mulled wine, waiting his chance to skulk into the darkness of the moorland night to prey upon innocent travellers. Peter and I joined a knot of drinkers in a small grassy enclosure sheltered behind dry stone walls. Amongst the group was Hugh of Gippsland and an Aussie who was tramping east to west, from Robin Hood's Bay to St. Bees. I've walked New Zealand's Milford Sound and to the base camp on Everest, the Aussie stated. But the walk I've enjoyed most is the coast to coast going as you are, west to east. In that case, I inquired, why east to west this time? To get a different perspective, he replied with a wry smile. With moorland views all round, I'd drawn the short straw. I'd been assigned an inside-facing room with an industrial view of the pub's roofline and the kitchen's ventilating system. However, the room was comfortable and better than sleeping beneath the stars on the notoriously changeable Yorkshire Moors. Even though by British standards the Lion Inn is isolated, it remained busy all evening. Every nook and cranny was crammed with noisy people eating and slugging ale. Hugh resisted an invitation to join us, preferring to sit alone writing his journal. We found a table in a small back room. Perhaps it was because of our isolated place, or because the inn was so busy, but our meals were stone-cold when they arrived. Fortunately, the frazzled waitress, in good humour, replaced them with hot pub grub. Even though the day hadn't been overly strenuous, an early night was too tempting to resist. And so, good night.